Hello, welcome to your local Imaginarium. I'm host Daniel Williams, along with host Calvin Seymour. Let's get started. First of all, welcome to our special guest. Uh, pretty sure this is the first time we've had you on. Is this your first visit to our podcast? This is my first visit to any podcast. Wow. So this is a. I want to thank you for really helping us fill in the content. Yeah, we're really stretching at this point, so uh, we had to reach out to somebody to help us basically fill up airtime, and you're available. No, yes. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're available. That makes you dedicated to helping you fill out this time and making sure that it's good. That when you told me what the what it was going to be about, I decided. Well, I'm not going to research that at all. I'm just going to just uh, go completely off the cuff and use my imagination. Wow, you're really going to fit in. Uh, so wait, you know what it's about? <laughs> no, I, I mean he told me what it was going to be about, but I didn't really pay any attention. Okay. Uh, all right. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, at least your name. Uh, my name is Eric, Eric Morris. Um, um, I don't, I don't know what else you're looking for me to say. Uh, I, uh, I'm a, I'm a computer nerd and a RPG and I like, uh, comics and things like that. And, um, I've also known these two guys who are doing the podcast for quite a few years. Okay, that's um, a good start. Specific, do you, do you have an imagination? It's like fourth grade. Yeah, I do. I guess. I well, that's our only requirement, really, is to have an imagination. Yeah, well, look, I've, I've known Eric uh, since uh, he was in the third grade and I was in the fourth. And I believe that's right. I think uh, so. Yeah, and uh, so, yeah, we are obviously lifelong friends. And I can tell you he's one of the smartest guys I know. Yeah. Um, Really, uh, really smart guy. A lot of uh, interest in uh, in imagination in general, but also a very technical mind. You know, uh, I know you have a lot of interest in uh, uh, like science and space exploration, and uh, even you know, I know politics, which we 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 try to stay away from. But uh, that's just some stuff I know about Eric. Uh, I'll warn you guys that Eric and I have a tendency. It's kind of like uh, oil and water when we get together. You know, uh, some bad, colorful words come out of our mouth, so we're going to have to probably start bleeping. Uh, we'll need a new sound, Daniel. Okay. So I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'll come up with a new sound. It'll, it'll be like a duck sound or a quack sound or something. <laughs> There's actually pretty funny about that because, um, yes, we tend to um, – I guess bring out the the very colorful language in each other, but I'm a little better at controlling it than Calvin because see his wife actually gets upset about it, and so whenever I come over and visit, he always gets in trouble, not me, because I can usually tone it down when I want to, but he just goes off the chain. So well, I just you, can't help it, man. I see your face, and suddenly you know we're you know young boys learning to cuss again, and that's what happens. <laughs> learning how to cuss. That's it. <laughs> There's your there's your episode. <laughs> there's your episode name right there, Daniel. All right, I suspect I'll have a few to choose from. <laughs> All right, so I mean, not to throw you know uh, fuel on the fire or anything, but uh, I have the, the the show notes open, and if you scroll down a little bit in there, and I know you don't have access to those, Eric, uh, and I'm sure Calvin hasn't brought them up, so it's sort of a surprise. I'm just going to throw it right out there and say, do you consider boxing to be a creative activity 
Who do you want to start? Whoever, whoever has a yes answer. I have a yes answer. I think boxing is definitely creative. Um, you, oh. and if you if you watch if you watch enough of it, you, you start to you start to see um, a lot of the intricacies that you don't that you don't pick up um, as a casual observer, right? And um, I'm sure Calvin can go into more detail because he's a more critical analyzer of boxing. We've we've been boxing fans for quite a few years. I've I've watched it. I remember watching uh, Hagler Hearns and Evander Holyfield when he was a cruiserweight. So I mean that's going back into the mid to late '80s. Um, but yeah, some of those guys and their their techniques. You know, you see, um, they don't. Or, you know, fighter A will not beat fighter B just based on the fact that he can punch harder and faster. It's because, you know, fighter A moves in this one specific way. And he knows when when fighter B takes a step to the left, I'm going to move in this direction and reposition here and get these angles. And when you start to be able to, to notice those things, I think that's when you, um, so that's when you a, can't see that. That's a bit of a chess match, which I, I chess definitely can be creative. Uh, but I. I just wonder if there's more to like um, imagination and, and creativity within the actual fight itself. Yeah. See, listen, listen. What separates what separates a good fighter from a great fighter is one thing, and it's imagination. It's intelligence. They call it ring intelligence, but in truth, it's the guy who who really buckles down and learns his trade. And gets that, you know, everyone can kind of get that 90% level within a, a couple of years, right? But that last 10% is real hard to get. And it, it makes a difference because, you know, let's, let's talk about chess for a second. When you play chess, the game's pretty much equal, right? Every piece can do the same. That's why everyone kind of puts so much value to it. When boxing, they limit your weapons. It's not like an MMA. You can attack from so many more angles. You're so much more likely to get knocked out in MMA for, for a variety of reasons, but because they can employ more ways for the brain to, uh, to have to uh, process during, you know, a split second in a fight. It's just, it's just easier to get knocked out in boxing. You have two weapons. You know where you know where they're coming from. As a matter of fact, if you fight long enough, you soon don't even have to kind of look to know, you know, how to move your body to avoid whatever they're following it up with. And you know, you get a you get the really high level uh, offensive geniuses and defensive geniuses, and that's what they're doing. They're two steps ahead of you, just like chess. They're processing everything that's going on they feel where you are by i mean you know you look at a fighter like uh say pernell whitaker okay or or you know a modern you know a mayweather or whatever these guys beat people off of fundamentals they 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 learn everything that the other guy learns but then they think about it and they use their imagination and they go well if i stand out just outside the right side of his foot He's going to have a real hard time nailing me with his big power punch. So what they're constantly doing is is beating the other guy through footwork, so that the other guy is 
is you know he's doing what he he's taught to do just like him but he's just that step or two behind and it's just like in chess when you're thinking ahead you go hey if i move here he's gonna move there so why don't i fake a move there and punch here that's imagination you know you've also got um uh you, you've got uh examples of a uh, fighter like a uh, um vladimir klitschko who basically ruled the heavyweight division for the last 10 years. Well, I remember, you know, in the, I guess it was probably the early 2000s or maybe the late 90s um, when we were watching him fight, uh, when he originally came on the scene, he's a big guy. He's six foot six, you know, 250, 260 pounds, super huge heavyweight. He was bigger than everybody. And he, he burst on the scene by basically just pummeling everyone until he ran into uh, – Hasim Rockman, I think it was, who had a big punch. And basically, Rockman hit him one time, knocked him out, fight was over. And we all, you know, thought, oh, well, you know, that was fun. This guy's career is over. But there's this one guy out there, right, uh, Manny Stewart, who, who who saw this big, huge, strong, powerful fighter. And he saw something else. He saw the potential for a great boxer. And so he took over as Klitschko's trainer and trained him to use the jab, use your feet, be intelligent. Don't get in there and into these fights with these big guys. You know, use your size as your, you know, to your advantage to keep them away from you. So he was able to see that, uh, you know, superset of what this guy was originally doing and turned him into a great champion for many years. Interesting. Yeah, you know, he did the same thing with Lennox Lewis before then. Lewis had horrible balance problems and had no jab to speak of, and he turned him into pretty much the deadliest heavyweight we've seen in a long time. You know, uh, so y'all talking about? I mean, let's, in some ways, you're talking about like giving them tools uh, more than really uh, speaking to how they help them be creative in the use of the combination of those tools. I don't think you can teach that part, Daniel. Yeah, I think you have – if you think about like uh, maybe maybe a good example for what you're actually looking for would be someone like Bernard Hopkins, right? Uh, if you think about Hopkins, he, he didn't have physical tools that were greater than all the other middleweights of his time. So young – you know, early in his career when he ran into a young Roy Jones who had greater and superior skills, you know, uh, uh, Jones beat him. But Hopkins was able to stick around for a long time. He had a really long career. And if you watched him in the ring, you could you could always see he was always thinking. He was always looking for any little thing to give him an advantage. And a lot of people said that he was a dirty fighter. And, you know, uh, he was. But, uh, you know, you could you could always see the wheels turning. If he could use an opportunity to get any kind of mental advantage on you, he would take it. Um, when he when he beat Felix Trinidad, he went to Cuba and, you know, in an arena full of Cuban people, basically threw a Cuban flag on the ground and stomped on it and then had to like sprint out of there. But he got in he got in Trinidad's head so much before that fight that when they got in the ring, he got Trinidad completely out of his game and he kept him there by just, you know, little prods. Oh, the referee's got his back turned. I'm going to hit you just a little bit low, you know, keep you angry, keep you not thinking straight. And he played he played the true mind games in the ring interesting so uh yeah i can so i am not a student of the game of boxing a sport of boxing at all uh so but i have watched a little bit of it and i i play other competitive things myself which obviously don't involve me getting hit or hitting anybody but i can i can see the uh the same uh principles apply 
to any type of competition between people where it becomes a matter of creativity uh, about being, you know, Sun Tzu talked about this for war, but you can you can see it in any type of competitive uh, contest between people where you don't do the obvious, don't be where they expect you to be, go somewhere they don't expect you to be, get inside their decision-making loop, right? So, you know, they're trying to react to you where you, you keep the initiative, uh, don't go where they're strong or use weapons. You know, if you're playing some kind of online game, use use weapons that are to your advantage versus um, their advantage. And, I, and, you know, the same the same thing in, in I that I have observed applies to, to boxing. If you've got a long reach, you know, you can use that. Uh, if they've got a strong punch, they can do that. You know, don't go in there and start putting your jaw out there if they've got, they can knock you out, right? But those are tools and skills, okay? Even the Sun Tzu stuff is something you can learn. Now, Manny could teach you how to maintain your balance. He could teach you how to flick and use your jab properly. He could teach you. He could teach a tall boxer how not to box down to a smaller man, thus making himself more vulnerable. He, you, anyone can learn these things. But imaginative genius is different. You cannot learn it. It is something. It's 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 like a. It's just like like look at Roy Jones. Roy had such physical gifts, speed. He had a speed power combo mixed with some skill. His, though I don't think he won with skill. He won with his tremendous reflexes and speed, and and his imagination. He had a lot of imagination. Uh, but some fighters purely can they just can outthink you and they do it by from they put these things together that they've learned and create a space on the fly and they know what you're going to do before you do it this this is Mar, uh this is Floyd Mayweather describing him to a T this is what he does he he absolutely knows what you're going to do this is why I give McGregor a chance against Mayweather because Mayweather relies so heavily on his knowledge and, and his imagination to exploit what you're going to do that I actually think McGregor has a has a greater shot than normal because he's not going to do what Floyd thinks he's going to do. He's not trained. He's completely, I mean, he's trained, but he's unorthodox. He's not a boxer. And I think that makes him extremely dangerous for Floyd, uh, who 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 beats people because they do exactly what he already knew they were going to do, and they walk right into what I mean, walk right into what he he's got set for him. You know, uh, he he'll throw he'll throw a punch, and it's just because he knows you're going to be there. You know. Because he moved his body a certain way, and people react ninety percent of the time. It's kind of like uh, equilibrium. You ever watch that movie? <laughs> yes, on your recommendation, with the gun, <laughs> gun kata and, and actually, stuff. I think I think Pernell Whitaker more defines equilibrium than than Floyd does personally. I mean, the man could literally stand right there in front of you, not not really move his feet very much at all, but just body movement side to side, and Floyd. you just you, you make you look like an idiot, like you're just swinging at the air. I- I agree, and, and honestly, I think those two are pretty darn equal. Uh, I think, and I kind of talked to you about this before, but I think the uh, main difference in the two of them uh, is some physical gifts that Floyd has. 
you know? Uh, like, if Purnell could have been a little bit more offensive in terms of, like, his power and speed, uh, that, though I do believe that Purnell was more skillful. Like, I don't think I ever really saw – it was very rare for him to get out of position, even against a good, really top-class boxer, you know, like Buddy McGirt. You know, he he just simply out – Fundamental team. All right. So before we get too far off into obscure boxers, uh, that's a we'll, we'll use that to segue a little bit into uh, something that is in our list of what's cool, and that is the Spoils of War episode episode of Games of Thrones. Specifically, before we get to the burninating, which I was one episode early on the guessing of that, the uh, the certain character, Arya, who was using her water dancing uh, techniques against Brienne to stand there, basically, and avoid uh, her attacks and, and, you know, minimal effort and flowing from one move to another. I really like that scene in that show. So a little bit of spoiler alert. I should have put that in earlier, but there is a confrontation there. Uh, I really like that scene. I think they spent a lot of time and got that to act really well so move from actual fighting though constrained to fantasy fighting what did y'all think about that that scene um i i I liked it uh obviously um the the um i don't know i really liked the the very end of the scene or i guess it wasn't technically the end it was right in the middle when they segued from uh brienne of tarth kind of half-heartedly, you know, reluctantly fighting this, you know, young noble girl that she was sworn to protect and didn't really want to fight because she didn't want to hurt her. And then, uh, you know, she's like, where did you learn that? You know, from nobody. And then they go into the rest of the fight. Well, that, you know, so so right then you kind of get the, is this is this the technique that she learned from, you know, the uh, water dance master that she had when she was, you know, essentially a prisoner in, in, um, in the uh, iron in, in the I'm sorry in the um, oh the keep the, uh, the red keep when she was red uh, keep thank you not really a prisoner because Ned was still alive at the time but you know what I'm one, saying yeah he can, he brought her trainer in yes then uh, that that is what she used at the beginning of the fight was that slow motion just minimal use and then she got more sophisticated when I think that was when yes. she, her 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 response about who she learned that part from was. Uh, more correct in the, the first part. Yeah, so she's she's basically got this style that she's adapted from uh, both he and you know the trainings of Jake and Hagar um, when she was over with the Faceless Blunzer. I can't remember exactly what they're called either. Yeah, I think the the Assassins Guild basically, and you know there there's a conspiracy theory slash uh, ten full hat slash crazy idea that. Sirio, who was the, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, who was the water dancer, the first sword of whatever, Bravos, yes, the water yes. dancer, who, who he, the theory is that he is in fact a faceless man who was there to start the training. Um, so so I don't, I'm not sure that's correct, but I like, I like to put it by head that, that way, what they call headcanon. They never did show what happened to him. Yeah, he's, he, he may not be dead. I'm not sure in the books whether they were more detailed. It's been a lot while. Well, uh, yeah, it's a, it, they definitely left it a little bit open-ended. So I like that. I like to think that 
she's been under, yeah, under their yeah. training for quite a while. Uh, you know, you know who's using the most imagination there, though. It's uh, it's it's uh, Littlefinger. His mind is turning. I like uh, I like how they could just show him standing there with barely any. I any, love it. <laughs> and you're like, I imagine all the things that he's thinking right now. Well, you know yeah. what's interesting. Obviously, that's the case, but. Um, if you've if you've been watching really closely this season, you've also noticed there's somebody else who started who started giving you those same looks. Uh, Sansa now is she's beginning to look very thoughtful at these different scenes. Like for you know she's sitting up there while Arya's down there fighting him, and it's hard to tell if the look on her face is you know jealousy as you know where did my sister learn how to do all these things or calculating and i'm not sure i'm not sure which one it was but she was sitting next to Littlefinger, and they were both they both had you know they weren't speaking they were very intently watching and and i assume for different reasons and i will he's grooming her you know i'll throw one thing in she's not quite the master yet because during the fight and this is very subtle i don't know if it means anything but during the fight Littlefinger looks over at Sansa and gets a, a read on her, and then when the fight's over, when he's already composed himself, then she looks over and gets a read on him. So it was very subtly done about he took in the situation while it was ongoing, and but Sansa was a little bit behind on on reading that. So she she waited until the waited, but when it was over and she had taken in the whole whole battle, uh, whole fight, she looked over at him, you know, very subtly, but. Was and he got? She got basically nothing other than he's interested. So I thought that was very I'll have well to, done. I'll have to rewatch and 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 see that. But you know, well, definitely, there's a there's definitely an Emperor Darth Vader thing going on right now, right? He's the master. Yeah. You know, but she might be one day. Well, Littlefinger had already been rocked earlier. Uh, oh yeah. When when he gave that dagger to Bran and Bran and Bran told him chaos is a ladder. <laughs> All right. Did you catch that? Oh, yes. yes. That's, that was very significant. That was hard to miss. Yeah. So, so you know, he's sitting there in shock, you know, like pretty much wanted to get out of that room as quick as he could because, you know, Bran just proved to him that somehow he could see or hear him at some point or time when he would say that. Who knows how often he says that, but that one instance where he talked with Varys – that's what he said, you know. Yeah. That's that's kind of how he lives his whole game by his game of thrones he's playing. Uh, and he, by the way, for the longest time, isn't I've always thought he was the guy that was winning the game of thrones. I think and, uh, I think you're right. I think he is, and I think I hope one of the themes of the show is that Game of Thrones is just going to be it's irrelevant, right? So he's I don't know how they're going to play it, but he if he wins the Game of Thrones in some way. What he's really winning is, you know, ash, ashes, or in this case, an undead world where there's just a bunch of undead. He's going to be dead or undead. So I think it sort of speaks to, yeah, he's playing. He's a master playing checkers, uh, and there is a whole different tournament going on that he's been completely not even aware of. And he's been really, really good in his little tournament, but this other one is the is the real game. Uh, so either. Either they got to bring him in, like how, you need to get on the side of living, or he's going to keep being selfish. So I don't know. It's, it's well, you know interesting character. 
of all the main players who are playing the game, right, since season one, all the people who've been there and that you would consider to be the major players of the game, he is consistently, every season, including this one, the most informed out of all of them. Like even right now, you know, when John's trying to convince Daenerys about the White Walkers and, and essentially Cersei is completely oblivious to what's going on in the North. But Littlefinger is aware of all the things going on in the South. And he's also aware of all the things going on in the North. So, mm-hmm. you know, once again, he's uh, he's on top of things. Now, I don't think his plans are working out exactly like he wanted them to, especially well, when, listen, when Bran threw him for the loop. But he's in. He is currently right now adjusting his plan. Before this episode, he spent like two episodes sitting against a wall. They they. How much time did they spend showing him? Not say a word. But sit against the wall and listen. They filmed like five minutes of this dude listening to everything for like over a couple of episodes. It's just so it's so cool what they're doing with that character. You know, they you, you just know that he he realizes that his victory, his chance, just it it rests on just the slightest change. Uh, you could visually see him excel when Jon Snow went to go see uh, Daenerys. And it's because I think that he knew he couldn't he couldn't win the game if Jon was still there. And when he, when he turned it over to Sansa, it was like, okay, now on to the next phase, which I believe is no Jon Snow ever coming back. It's his thoughts. Hmm. I have a personal... I desire to see Jon Snow show up on top of a dragon, but to just just kick him come back riding a dragon, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. Well, there's, you know, he hasn't, he doesn't know about his legacy clearly, and he doesn't have any way of, you know, uh, relaying that to Daenerys. But if you, if you paid attention to the scenes that they were in, there's a certain amount of tension that exists between the two of them right now. Um, You know, I think it. I think it's. I think it's fair to say it might be like a sexual tension that's existing there. I think that they're they're starting to develop a a, a healthy respect for one another. Yeah, I, I know that that's deliberate. They're they're tending at it a little bit, and it hasn't been. It, it it's not been like um, overly played, underly played. I think they've done a good job of just like putting it there and just letting it just just be. Two people who aren't interested in that, um, despite all the fan hype that that would cause, and people want that. I think that they've been very deliberate about just laying it, laying it there, and letting it be very subtle and not not overly uh, made a big deal of. So I, I I don't know where they're going with that, and uh, so I'll say I'll say in general, and I think, I think I've mentioned this before. It's really weird being a uh, just a show watcher now without any ability to have any insight into what people are the, the characters are thinking uh, before before having read the books I was always at least had some insight into motivation and uh, what the, an individual individual character was thinking in some moment relative to the to the show uh, the book show combination because of course in the in the books it's all point of view it's all from a character's perspective. So you always get somebody's thoughts going on. Uh, so it's been, it's been quite a change. Uh, 
when I when Calvin's saying, looking at Littlefinger there, standing against the wall, thinking something before, I would have at least some idea of what he's thinking, what his objective is, how he's evaluating the situation. Uh, even if they didn't necessarily follow that up on the, in the show, at least it it informed the show or, or the motivations and the actions they took. Anyway, so it's been a big, big change there, and, and I enjoy it. Uh, and I, I, I think this is going to be the definitive version of the whole story. I don't know if we're ever going to see or really accept the the book version as a as the real version. Anyway, so that's the uh, that's the the teaser part. I think that the the main part of this the show was definitely the attack uh, on on the, the loot train. The that's loot what train, they- right? They call it loot train, but. Uh, the first question I have to ask is, uh, and I've never been in the military, but apparently Westeros has never heard of scouts ever of any type. Uh, all the way back to when it was wildlings. I mean, before this, but what I can remember was the wildlings versus the Stannis' cavalry uh, getting wiped out. Uh, the, in, this, in this season alone, the ships just being surprised. There's no other fleet just rolling up on you and taking you out. Uh, and then here's here's the whole Dothraki horde rolling across the <laughs> the whole continent, and surprise, uh, you know, just no scouts, no no warning whatsoever, just attack. They had hoof prints like some Western when they put their ear to the ground and heard the the cavalry going by. Uh, but that slight criticism aside, it was a great scene. It was an epic scene, and it was I really like. The tactics they use, like using the dragon to open up hole in the line, so that the, they could, you know, they turn the sides. Just uh, it was, it was great, well done. Uh, even even little stuff like when uh, Daenerys is burning stuff and she stops burning the stops burning the troops to start burning the supplies, which I'm not sure if that's a great idea, but you know, because they want to burn her own troops, uh, which we've seen other characters just not care and fire into the. The melee before, so I think all of that was handled really well. A lot of thought put into it, and I really enjoyed it. And I, uh, I think it's one of the best scenes, second only to the ending of Hard Home, when uh, they had to fight the undead. And dude at the end was like, "Come at me, bro!" When he raised all the undead. That's the only thing I think has been better. But uh, this is really good. So anyway, do y'all have some opinion about that? That was one of the most stressful. Um scenes that I've watched so far the uh there were there were a couple of scenes there were a couple of specific uh things that were going on there that I just did not know which way I wanted it to go right I mean there's I I, I know we said spoiler alert but you know there's that whole scene where you're like um you know do you want it to be Drogon or do you want it to be Bronn you know uh do you want it to be Jamie or do you want it to be Daenerys you know there's just there's there's these couple of scenes and and um I there's completely, really completely agree. You go on, but I completely agree. There's no, I mean, obviously there's a good guy and a bad guy, right? I mean, the Lannisters are bad guys. That's just that's how it is. But in that specific scene, there is no, um, there doesn't it doesn't feel like there's a well defined protagonist and antagonist because you want both sides to survive. You want them both to be able to win, and 
you don't feel like it's going to be able to, you, you know, you know, you see where I'm going with this. It was just very yes. difficult. Especially, I was especially, very- especially put in the context of this is just a sideshow, folks. This isn't the real battle. You're you're wasting all this manpower and and supplies. Put in that context, suddenly you're dropped back down to these people who have conflicts and are fighting each other. Yes, it's like, what, guys, why are you fighting? I like all your characters. Please don't anybody die. Right. Yeah. I think we've actually had a lull of really significant deaths after so many that people have kind of gotten like like the characters that are there can't die. So I think I think you're right, Eric. Uh, this last episode was the first episode in a while where I felt like, you know, one of my favorite characters was about to die. Who I, I just love Braun. I love Braun a lot. And uh, I was like, oh, here he goes. He's about to die. You know, he's just too much crazy going on. And I was really worried about it. But it's pretty funny that anybody worries about uh, Jamie Lannister. You know, he's... He's awesome, and I know they've made him much more human with the Brienne stuff and all, you know, the hand chopping and just all the stuff he's gone through. But let's face it, uh, you're, you're rooting for a guy who tried to off an eight-year-old kid, you know? Uh, it, he's just, he's he's wrong in so many ways, and it, it, it's beautiful that the lines are so blurred enough that you actually do care about the character. Well, that character, that character has grown a lot since episode one, season one. Now, I, I understand what you're saying. He's not a good guy, right? He, there's, he's got some entirely loathsome traits, but the character has grown quite a bit. But on the Braun subject, I don't think you have to worry about Braun dying because here's my prediction is he's got to go back to the Red Keep because he's got to rescue the little Viper chick that rescued him. You know, the one that uh, gave him the antidote, he's got to give her the antidote. <laughs> No, I, I don't know. I I don't think the snakes are going to fare too well, personally. Uh, maybe not. I was just maybe wishful thinking. You know, there's only, what, nine episodes ever left, right? How many? Yeah. I mean, there were seven this season. What was that, number four? So we got three left. And then six next season. So we only there's nine episodes. Let's face it. All our imaginary friends out there, you're about to have some imaginary characters die some very vicious imaginary deaths. And it's going to be great. And I don't think many of them are going to, and none of them are going to get raised again. I think we've we've seen the few the few uh, raising that we're going to have of main, I, main characters. You know, I forget who said this this week. It might have been you, Daniel, but it cracked me up. It was like, Lord, help us if uh, they kill a dragon. I hope that corpse isn't around when the Night King shows up. <laughs> yeah. What was that? I, I, yeah, I was yeah, like I the ice, ice dragon. Yeah, undead yeah. ice dragon. I think that's the reason they showed us those the uh, giants. You're like, oh, the giants are all gone. Like, nope, they're not all gone. They're <laughs> They've been raised. So you got three dragons. That's cool. Oh, one died. That's you know that's I, the whole point of the army it. is it grows as you lose people, it gets it gets worse. Hey, uh, two two other things I want to talk about before we move on from this thing is first off, how cool were the Dothraki? That was a really neat battle. Just the the little small stuff, you know. I liked how they showed their different like the 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 uh, Genghis Khan style of you know horse archery and all that. Uh, and uh, but but the real subtle the subtle work of like Tyrion, he's so conflicted. And I feel so sorry for him. You know, he's rooting for his brother basically. You know, 
and, and he can't help but do it. And it really, I mean, he probably had a moment of self-realization, maybe. I don't know. But, again, yeah. you can't, can't look into it where he's like, yes, actually, maybe I am in conflict here about I don't want to hurt my family. Uh, and, you know, that's that's legitimate. I mean, maybe I'm not saying it was conscious on his part, but as an unconscious bias about, like, minimizing the destruction, uh, I think that a legitimate criticism of his strategy so far. I don't think he wants to hurt his brother. I, I don't. I don't know that you could say he doesn't want to hurt his family, but he definitely doesn't want to hurt his brother. His brother. That's uh, the yeah, impression that I was thinking get. more like his troops. I think he had. Jamie some. was the only guy that ever was nice to him. Like you know, Jamie treated him like a brother. That uh, that you know, he didn't have that from the other members of his family. You know. So you know, let me ask a question because I've uh, I've kind of thought about it a little bit. I haven't been able to delve too deeply into it, but there was some confusion, or I had some puzzlement in the scene where John had uh, Daenerys down below Dragonstone, and he was showing her the uh, cave art, basically from the. Um, uh, but it, but here's the thing: it it showed the. Um, it showed the the men fighting alongside. Was it the Children of the Forest, or is that what they're called? I cannot right. even remember. It showed them fighting alongside against the White Walkers, but yet the Children of the Forest are the ones who created the White Walkers. So, All what, right, so what is your a little bit of spoiler here because this is some deep history that I happen to know. But basically, what the Children of the Forest and the First Men or whoever they're fighting, right? And basically, the Children of the Forest are losing. And so they decide to make, make, create a weapon of mass destruction. So they take the Night King and they shove this dragon glass obsidian stuff into his heart. And they make make him. And they think they've got some control over him. But for some reason, I forget, or it's unknown, that he they lose control. Uh, and basically the army of the dead grows. And they lose control of this weapon. It becomes uh, something they can't control, and it starts taking, it, defeating both sides. So, the children of the forest and the first men have to come and fight together. The pact, and they 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 fight together to push them back north. Um, and I think uh, I forget. I think they help build the wall and stuff like that. Uh, but so that basically, what's going on is yes, they were fighting and they created as a weapon these undead, the, the night king and his undead minions. Uh, the White Walkers, and they lost control of that weapon, sort of like in Star Trek when they uh, <laughs> the make uh, the Earth Eater super weapons wandering the galaxy. Uh, they they make this weapon that is the undead. They can't stop it, can't control it, until they get together. And that's that's apparently what they're showing there. I'm not sure if they have that depth to it in the show, but that's when they're 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 before the wall. Uh, they, they roamed much further south and. Uh, got together there and were with the humans and, and decided to fight the, the Night King and the Undead together. Okay. I suspected it was something kind of like a, you know, buyer's remorse, right? They make the people and then there's some regrets there. I didn't know that that was the exact history there, but that explains that. All right. So uh, I just want to have one more piece on that. I just want to point this out. Uh, it was very odd editing about how they're in that cave you're talking about and they have a little speech about like I will fight you know Daenerys is saying I will fight for you you just gotta bend the knee basically and he's and John's all like you know they're never gonna accept you and she's like yes well you know they just they just did 
just like not too long ago. Uh, and then they have the conversation, and then it's just cut, and they're walking out. Uh, it was very odd editing, and I, I just keep it, I just put a little pin on that about did John agree to something that will be revealed later in some kind of flashback? Um, because there was no resolution to that. It was just. I, I think he. I think he bent the knee in the cave. I, 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 I noticed that too. And I think that while they were in there, that uh, later on they're going to reveal that uh, he, he realized that she was right and that uh, she's worthy. And he decided he was going to follow her and that, you know, consequences be damned. Because that's I what I think. I don't think so. I don't think so. It could be just some interesting editing, poor editing. You know, unintended consequence. It was definitely suggestive. I don't think that they would hide such a dramatic moment. And uh, I know you've seen the memes of Hodor, 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 and uh, you know, uh, Ben Danay, Ben Danny, Danny, Ben Danay, you know, Ben Danny, get it, Ben Danny, that's out there. And uh, I've not seen that one. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, we're basically turning her into Hodor, but saying bend the knee. And then uh, on top of that, the preview for episode five has her up north on a rock talking to John's people and basically telling them you're going to listen to me or you're going to die. I'm not sure so, that's what it showed. I think he was talking to the people they captured, the Stannis, not the Stannis, the uh, Lannister people. I think that's uh, what she was talking to. I don't know because they 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 had so much. They even cut away to that whole Tyrion and Varys thing, where Varys is like, "Hey, you're going to have to find some way to get through to her," and it happens immediately right after she's given the death threats. You yeah. know, seems a lot like a certain uh, former ruler. <laughs> Let's move on from Game of Thrones, and I, I have a, another question. Okay. Uh, so this has been extremely successful fantasy series on HBO. Uh, it's coming to conclusion. You know, we, we talked about the numbers episodes left. It'll be over soon. What do you think, or what do you look forward to as the next best great fantasy series on TV or you know Netflix or whatever we call it TV these days? But what is the what is the next great one? And I have my own answer, but I'll let y'all go first. I don't know what's going to be the next great one, but I am glad that you asked this question because I saw something right before we got started on IGN that the new uh, mega city that's come, you know, they say it's probably two to four years out, but um, they're basically in talks with Carl Urban to be Judge Dredd in the new mega city series. So interesting. And Carl Urban was a great Judge Dredd in the last Judge Dredd movie. He was really great. Not, I a agree. Judge, not a big Judge Dredd fan, but I am kind of a Carl Urban fan since, you know, he's Star Trek, Bones, whatever. So, uh, and before that as well. So, he is a great actor and he's really good in everything he's in. So unfortunately, great. unfortunately, it seems like everything that he's in fails with the exception of Star Trek. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily think that's his fault, I, I, but there's been some poor decisions in a lot of the different things that he's been in. Um I felt like the Judge Dredd movie was a big success uh, personally to me. I felt like they really captured the grit 
Um, they really captured the semi-fantastic aspects of some of the things that go on there. Um, and and Carl Urban just he uh, exemplified the the aura of Judge Dredd. You know, when you when you saw him put that helmet on at the beginning. That's just another little little stamp and you know little check check box. Yep, that's Judge Dredd. I, I, I felt like it was really good. I agree. Um, so I'll, I'll let Calvin think about it for a second, unless you have something right now, Calvin. Well, uh, I would, but I happen to see the show notes, and I would be saying exactly what you're saying. Okay, so well, I'll just let you speak. I was gonna go ahead. Okay, I'll go ahead and say it. Well, uh, basically, the King Killer Chronicles uh, is is. And that's Patrick Rothfuss, King Killer, uh, Name of the Wind, and uh, The Wise Man's Fear are the two books that are out. And he's coming to the third one. Uh, and, you know, Pat, if you're listening, no rush, no no pressure. Just write it when, when you have time. And I say that because a lot of give <laughs> give him a lot of grief. Uh, but I'm looking forward to it when it comes out. And he is making it – he has part of a TV show that is – that that fantasy series and it is one of in my opinion one of the best since Tolkien in about um, the depth of the world uh, it doesn't have as many books it doesn't have as much written about it obviously but just the amount of thought and care and construction has gone into it, it it's just really well done and I'm really looking forward to that uh, head and shoulders what I would have chosen, even if it hadn't already been announced that it's coming out, uh, I'd, I'd be hoping it well, was that. If you want to get into what you know, what we would choose, I'm dying to see Elric in any form of adaptation. Uh, I'd love to see him as a TV show. Uh, I saw, uh, you know, for those that aren't familiar with the character, you know, Elric and Melna Bonet uh, was created by Michael Moorcock. He's pretty much the original goth anti-hero, um, very elf-like, uh, and uh, was everything that Conan wasn't there. I said it. Um, and so I, I really want to see it. Uh, it just seems to me like it's the right time uh, for uh, this to happen. I mean, about 10 years ago, the... Uh, the, uh, a couple of directors uh, licensed an option to do it and it ended up dying, you know, before they could get it get it out, but uh, I think they were kind of talking Jude Law back then but I don't know who would play him now uh, I saw a meme the other day about perhaps uh, Hiddleston, but I'm not sure if Hiddleston would, you know be the guy for that part he certainly, he certainly kind of has the bone structure for it, but and he would bring star power to it, so there's always that. Uh, and he's certainly a great actor, so I think he probably could pull it off. But uh, El- Elric is about a, a a ruler from a decadent society that you know basically mankind's young and they're kind of taking over the world, and the um, you know he sits on his ruby throne brooding, and then he decides to go out into the world kind of a swan song uh he wields this evil magic sword called Stormringer, which you know his whole society is very evil by our standards you consider them to be so and uh 
you know, I think I just think it's the right time for this. So I'd love to see that on TV, or uh, you know, like someone like how can they, you know, HBO sign me up? I mean, right now, Game of Thrones is better than anything in fantasy that I ever seen. I have to say that really, as a whole, it just is. Uh, right. I love. Uh, I think one of your comments was they finally did Dragons Right on, oh, on yeah. TV. <laughs> yeah, they did that. Okay. And, and, you know they've. We had dragons and movies. They've done pretty good, but uh, this is uh, this is what we're looking for, you know. More, more like this. Yes, and we're going to get at least nine more viewings, though. I'm sure that they probably blew the budget for this season in that fight. We might not see anything like that again. I, I guarantee so, you. Gonna- I'm not sure. <laughs> I think one of the reasons they shortened it was because they have the same budget for the season. So they shorten yeah. the number of episodes so they can pack more and, and do the quality right for the episode. So I'm not sure I'm not sure we're done. We got three more. Uh probably take a little breather next next time. But then traditionally the penultimate episode in a season has been the real kicker. So then, you know, so six. Yeah. Look for six to be another uh another good one. Really really yeah. top top. We're probably gonna get the breather in number five. And then it's going to pay off in six, and then the the twist and the setup for see, the the final season will happen in seven. I agree, unless they're out thinking us, and it's all next next time. All right, so uh, I have just one more thing under what's cool, and, and that is today I learned that uh, I can get gigabit Ethernet, not Ethernet, gigabit Internet for just eighty five dollars a month to my house. So that that's pretty cool. Fake product. That's pretty cool. Totally, totally fake product. So as Game of Thrones is over, speaking of Game of Thrones, I'm going to cancel Comcast and, and go and get that going. Do you like oxygen, but do you hate the dreadful chore of actually breathing? Designed for today's typical internet citizen, Fakeco finally solved one of life's most painful toils, breathing by yourself. Announcing Fakeco's patently absurd, not pending, self-breathing air. That's right. Keep yourself supplied with pure, or mostly pure, somewhat pure, sufficiently pure, mostly air for your lungs. All you do is open up a can of Fakeco self-breathing air in an atmosphere already teeming with completely sufficient air, and then stop breathing. Hold your breath until you wake up refreshed and ready to purchase more product. It's that easy. Get it today. Alright, so the last section is really the first section because it's really this part two of Interview with the Calvin. I know Calvin you claimed earlier to be like brain dead or whatever, but I tested you. I put boxing out there and you do not appear to be brain dead at all. So, we are not going to let you escape this time. You have to uh, you have to answer some basic questions to finish up our interview with the Calvin. And I'm so glad Eric is here because he can call your BS. I mean, call you on your BS. And uh, my, my basic question is: What well, I answered last time about your favorite game setting that you Calvin made? And I'm hoping it's what I'm I'm thinking it is, but we'll see. So, what what is your favorite favorite game setting? 
role playing setting, I mean, that you've created in your whole life. Tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's you, you're never the same as a person, right? So, I've had uh, probably three major worlds over the years, and in a course they were more simplistic as i was a kid versus now so definitely you know uh i would have to go with my forbidden rights campaign and uh you know the forbidden rights basically the idea behind it is that uh you kind of have these this cycle of the gods where uh you know whenever a pantheon kind of comes into existence uh, they kind of spawn and create creatures of their making, you know. Um, and I think that's any any pantheon in, in history. That's what they, you know, they do. They make people in their likeness or whatever. And that's how that's how that's why we have gods, right? So I, I kind of dissected the general fantasy world into layers, and I came up with these different ages where. You know, uh, that kind of it kind of explained like evolution in a magical sense, so to speak, because every time the gods do, would change guard and and the new ones would uh, discover these forbidden rites and ascend, they would replace the old gods. Uh, they lock away the secrets on how to ascend, and they would go about their their business, um, which was a lot of work. You know, there's a reason why gods don't answer all your prayers, and you know it's a lot of work. <laughs> so they're, they're busy, like call, yeah. So call, they're call very, back. They're, they're very busy, uh, and of course, we don't really get into why that is. Uh, you know, I'm a I, I, I love Cthulhu stuff, uh, Lovecraft, and all that, and so the at the core of my world, you know, I, I guess the first age was this this creation by chance from these chaotic primordial gods that are very Cthulian. And once they thrashed and splashed around the cosmos, you had suns and stars and who knows where they went or what, what they are. They, they don't, you know, it's not, it's not a God in the traditional sense. It's more like a monster that gave everyone else the ability to to have these things, you know? So, you know, so when the gods ascend, well, they finally, they realize, hey, this is a lot of work because these these elder things are out there, and now we're unfortunately aware of them, and, well, we've got to keep them from coming and finding us because if they find us, they're going to squash us like gnats, you know? Not because they're evil, but just because, hey, look, bright light, right? So... Uh, that's kind of what the whole mythos was built upon and uh, I really like that world because I was able to play with so much and layering in those little tiny details allowed me to present a monster against someone that you know his origins just it's different than what you traditionally might get uh, you know uh, just talking from say a technical design standpoint uh, I when I heard the very first thought I can remember having on Forbidden Rights is that I wanted the monsters to feel more unique, where where like uh, 
they weren't just the same as you came upon every time. You know, if you came upon, like, like let's say the lowliest of the low, a goblin. Well, goblins are, they're kind of like night spirits. And they come from this different age when things like fear and stuff were embodied and created. So they're quite a different challenge than a, what do you think of as a goblin normally when it's brought to mind? And so I did that with like almost all my, all my uh, creations in that world. There was just that little, uh, that little angle I could take with them that could make them a little different, you know. So I would say that was the that's the main main world that I enjoyed. All right, cool. Well, you did a way better job of explaining yours than I did mine. I'm pretty sure I rambled through half mine. That's that's very interesting. The I have some follow up questions though, which is. Uh, I think you kind of answered how long you've been working on it. That's one of those ones that's been working on your whole life. It's, it's, yeah, it's, right? a, it's like, uh, well, I can tell you, I started on it sometime around when I was in 20s, late 20s. So it's coming up on 20 years old. It's definitely the longest that i played with. Matter of fact, I mean, people roll their eyes if I want to play in it now. It's done. You know, stick a fork in it. We're looking for something new. I had some precursors to the Forbidden Rights, but I think it was when I was living in Dallas in like 1998, around that time yeah. frame, was when we kind of started actually playing in it, and you were rolling everything up and getting that going. And I know that we we kept that going until at least probably 2012, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I believe the last thing that happened was some time travel that really made things difficult. <laughs> I think the time travel killed it, just like it does everything. Yeah, pretty much. Well, uh, we weren't supposed to time travel. We were supposed to not, but we were like, screw it, let's time travel. Is how I read that. Yeah, maybe maybe so. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it was, was it time travel or was it dream state type stuff? I'm not sure. It was kind of amb- ambiguous, if I remember correctly. I'm pretty sure it was time travel. And the previous attempt at that, I believe, had ended with, uh, well, no one cares about this, but the uh, Kirk's paladin dying or nearly dying or something with a big battle oh, yeah, or something. He died. Like that. Horrible death. Yep. Anyway, so that's um, that's what I would hope we'd select. It's got some of my favorite characters to come out of that. Uh, I don't know if Elson the imaginary character is part of that world. I don't, it was pretty early. I don't remember if it was or not. I yeah, think it he, was. He was. Yeah. Yeah. So there, you know, early on we had imaginary people. Yeah. He's the original imaginary guy, right? <laughs> yeah. Very, very much. He literally like a wish imaginary person character that I never actually played apparently. And he, he, yeah, you have, let's explain this to people really quick. Uh, go ahead. So, Basically, uh, I don't remember exactly the conversation we came up with when we were trying to get your character, but to fit him into the story, you were like introduced, I believe, uh, from Coolman's character, where uh, he like traveled uh, to Southern Realms and was looking for like a son or something. I can't remember. I mean, it's too long. So I'll tell you from my perspective. We, we started playing, and it was basically AD&D, like second edition or something. So it, it was not third edition. It was it was 
pre-third edition. And this character was like a fighter, wizard, combo, whatever that you could do because you just assign XP or something. They weren't really, you know, uh, exclusive. Like you do a little bit of one, you didn't necessarily not have the other ones. If I remember correctly, but uh, so he was had a little bit of fighter in him, a little bit of a lot of wizard in him. And when I recreated him for third edition to keep playing, I stupidly attempted to recreate that just to keep continuity, continuity, whatever, keep going the same thing. And you know, so he was like, he was a terrible character. He had, <laughs> he had like a little bit of wizard and a little bit of warrior and they didn't mesh in any way uh, and and he just sort of was, in a lot of ways I remember him just being along for the ride because he was like pretty high level campaign and he was not very high level in either one of those things anyway so the crux of him from my perspective was he his origin hidden from me the player was as a wish that somebody had used a powerful artifact and made a wish for a son or something like that right and so he was, at in essence, a magical creature. And this was revealed to me when he walked into a anti-magic field and basically disappeared. Right. <laughs> and all his clothes just fell off, and he didn't exist anymore. Uh, and that was kind of a surprise, as having played that through <laughs> quite a while. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, I think... <laughs> That was sort of the end of that character, is not not because he died at that moment, but just because as those things peter out, that sort of was the end of him. Uh, I think I took him a little bit further uh, and, and made some of my own characters and sort of made him a background uh, in some in some stuff to make him sort of a, a religious figure for some people, uh, some for some characters. But so that that campaign setting was not only a great campaign, the world, but some of the characters that that came forth in it were also great right and some of the uh, uh, we had several people that played with us for the first time and it seemed like uh every time somebody came along their first time playing with us they inevitably died they they uh, it was like i think it happened three or four times people would come in roll up a character join the game and be dead within one or two sessions and then have to do it again i don't it was just a repeating theme uh, uh murph drowned um, well, he drowned, or did he have a dragon fall on top of him? No, he drowned. He, he drowned in an underground river. He had zero points in swimming and was wearing armor, so he drowned. And then, um, so his next character had points in swimming. And this, this is really funny, and, you know, this is a lot to do with experience when you play these games, right? But, like, it's very hard to kill one of your characters, Eric. I, not that I actually truly try, but even when I put the pressure on, more times than not, it's like... You find some way. It's like you know, you just know me too well, or you know what's going on. You never, you you very rarely make a bad decision. You know, are very successful in arguing some rules. I am a good rules lawyer. You can't handle the truth. Yeah. (laughs) Well, now your new character, just in the stuff we've been playing around with, I feel like he's very susceptible to making some bad decisions. (laughs) <laughs> I've been I've been playing him that way too. I feel like yeah, you, know. you have been like I, you're making him like a like that, which I found interesting because it's a different take from what I've you know normally seen out of you, you know. Uh, but yeah, this guy's definitely 
uh, got some different kind of motivations by him, so it's cool. I don't. I don't feel like this is one of my more iconic characters, but he might turn out to be kind of fun for the for his however long he sticks around. Yeah. Well, you you never know how iconic things get because if something will catch fire, I mean, I think these first two modules are pretty much boring. They're not that we're doing. We're doing the by the way, throwback to a couple episodes ago when we talked about the yawning portal. We're playing the tales from yawning portal, and we're in the first one right now, uh, the Sunless Citadel, and I find it very very vanilla. Uh, the one after it's kind of similar. Um, and, uh, you know, I have to do a little role play element in anything I do. So I've managed to find some glue to stick it all together. Uh, actually kind of centralizing around Kirk's character right now. Uh, but, uh, I, I noticed that like 80% of the modules that are in this book are about retrieving powerful magic items, right? So I took that as the kind of that's what's going on. There's this war brewing, and they're trying to recover some relics, or they can't win. That that's kind of what we're doing. Uh, All right, so, so we can have a look. Yeah. Uh, so before we we're getting we're getting into the danger zone time wise, but before we uh, before we call it a night, I want to sort of jump back to the iconic character thing and say uh, just just talk about. What your favorite character you've played is, uh, and I and I, you may be able to guess mine if you think about it. Maybe not. We'll see. But uh, uh, you start with Eric and say this. Just off the top of your head, what's your favorite character in Calvin's games that you've played? I've got three that pop into my head right off the top, and um, my, my favorite one is that. That is a really tough choice, um, but I'm going to go with Shim the rogue bard fighter um i just i just really felt like i had a good handle on him um i had a i had a lot of uh is he your favorite or is he just the most fun he was the most fun he was the most fun i guess that's a i guess that is a different question right i don't know if i'm answering the question correctly but i started i've already started going down the shim path so I'll, i'll i'll at least finish that train of thought um he had so many, so many, uh, extravagances, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was a creature of complete habit, you know, when, when presented with an option left or right, he would always go left. You know, if the party was in the middle of a fight and he saw a door that hadn't yet been opened and it was on the left side of the room, he, he would go open it, you know? So I basically played him like a obsessive compulsive halfling, curious uh if he saw something that you know grabbed his attention he would he just picked it up he took it and he wasn't stealing it from you he just was taking it because it was interesting to him he'd give it back you know if you asked him and then take it again but you know anyway that's he was a lot of fun yeah i think i i thought you would have said malcaven as a favorite but i see shim too but i kind of see shim as more of a fun character is Maybe not as interesting as a real character, but he's funny. And we can't argue he's been kind of gifted with just this kind of perfect things. I mean, some of the stuff that he's had happen and, and the way it kind of has all snowballed, he's probably one of the more powerful characters you played, but it's not because he's power hungry. It's really strange. 
Yeah, it was a very, very interesting mix. Very good character. Now, as far as Malkaven goes, though, I mean, yeah, when I sit down and and think back to, you know, which characters have the the, the richer story elements, uh, it would definitely be Malkaven. Um, and if I was going to tell you who the other third one was, it would have been, you know, uh, Warden of Spain, my ranger, the first character that I played. Yeah. Also in the Forbidden Rights game, um, those are probably my three favorite. All right, Calvin, you're next. And you know, you're usually even almost always the the GM, uh, the DM, indeed. Tell us your favorite character, one you played, or someone else has played, or uh, whatever. Yeah, my favorite character, hands down, is uh, is actually my sci-fi character, Veta Corbett. Um, Veta is it. I've never been a very good player. I get I, I get bored. I'm not, it's not active enough for my mind, you know. And so a lot of times I've had some very bad characters that I just, you know, maybe didn't get into as well. But Veta, what I love about Veta, he is a uh, he's my science fiction. You know, if I'm playing Star Wars or anything along that lines, I pull this guy out, and he's basically a hyper paranoid uh, smuggler type. Uh, with some uh, high-tech weaponry and, 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 and uh, you know, he's really a skilled gun, kind of gunslinger type. Um, I like to say he's kind of a mix between, like, Boba Fett and Han Solo. Um, but anyway, he what makes him fun is I've kind of he, – he's super Mr. Unpredictable. Like, if there's something uh, that I can do that I think that he thinks will – will make a big difference he just actively seeks to catch people off guard and so that translates into lots of fun because there'll be this whole plan derived by by the the team and the entire time once i've kind of figured out what the plan is if if better thinks something is a better idea he doesn't ask he doesn't do anything of that nature just in the middle of what he's doing he executes his plan and uh, it's pretty fun. I mean, because everybody's like, what in the hell? You know, but things get escalated really quick when he's around. And uh, I don't know. I just I had the most fun with little things like barroom scenes. There, like, it's been a trope. There's not been a single barroom scene we've ever been in where Veta does not start a fight. Uh, it happens in every bar we've ever been in in any of the games. And, and uh, that's a lot of fun for me because I try to get creative on, on how I make that happen, you know. So he's a fun. For, he's my favorite character. Okay. I think that just real quick on the Veta Corbett thing, I think that Veta attained the the, the status uh, that he did with you and his, his legendary status basically. And the very first time that you rolled him up, Kirk, yeah. Kirk had put together this game. He had spent weeks putting together this game. And – we spent all night getting our characters ready. Uh, you know, towards you know, two hours later, the characters are ready. We've got a good, you know, another couple of hours to game. Kirk lays out the scenario. You know, I don't remember exactly what it was, but basically, there's an NPC who was involved with us when all the stuff went down, and the NPC is explaining what's going on, and Calvin's just like. You're trying to backstab us. You know, he just, he just right off the bat, the paranoia comes out and he basically gets in his head that this NPC, basically our benefactor, is actually trying to play us. 
and uh, Kirk's like, "What are you talking about? I'm not trying to play you." You know, he's he's role playing the NPC. You know, I'm. What are you talking about? I'm on your side. And Veta just blasts him. Just you know, blasts him. You know, rolls crits, kills the guy right right there. You know, ten minutes into the game, and Kirk just calmly leans over and closes the book, and he's like, "Okay, well, you just uh, you know, I mean, that was basically that was oh, the mastermind. <laughs> that was the mastermind behind all the evil plans that were going on in Calvin Kill." So legendary status. That was kind of a legendary way to start a character. I like. I agree. But uh, yeah, he's blossomed a lot since then. I kind of I rang that in a hair bit. You know, he's uh, not quite as uh, not quite as gun happy as he was in the very first one. But still, I mean, it does not. It doesn't take much. You know, uh, that's what's fun about the character. I, I like. I was told they needed a diversion. I just turn around and I slug a guy at a table. That's what he does, you know? And, you know, I didn't really, I tried to not to play him with his safety in mind because he's really a competent character. So he's like, oh, a diversion? Bam, I'll give you a diversion. And, you know, you guys have it. And he's sitting over there fighting for his life, but it's nothing new, you know? Yeah, we're coming up with a plan to go down to the docks and, you know, recapture our ship. And, you know, we're all sitting around talking about it. And the next thing we turn around, look up and, you know, Lucky Joe and Veta are gone. You know, they're already down there at the docks, you know, shooting people. So, you know, <laughs> it's always it's always interesting. Yeah. yeah that's a lot of all fun. right. So uh, it's a good distinction we made about my favorite and the funnest. So I'm just going to go with the, the most fun character. Uh, and that and I don't know if you let me know if uh, – you, you guessed this, which was the Burgermeister that I played. <laughs> yeah. That was by far the most fun character I've ever played. Uh, and the setup there was Calvin had a, a brilliant idea about he was just going to make up some characters. And then we come in and basically in the order people arrive, they get to choose out of these preset characters what they want to play. But they uh, only knew the surface of the character. That's right. When you first presented it's just the surface of the character and when you actually pick it up and you say okay i'm playing this one then you get the background details it's been a lot of time a lot of effort into that uh but that was all irrelevant because was made the character for me was the picture of this over <laughs> overweight you know corrupt mayor looking thing a uh, human but he was just <laughs> this huge chin that just it was brilliant made everything work and it, whenever i maybe lose a character a little bit i have to go back and look at that picture and it was immediately back in my head exactly what, how i needed to play that guy uh, you know and he was just double talk he'd just string along a bunch of words until he got he'd get people confused and he'd, he'd make his point and everybody confronted him he would just be like you know, I can't he, believe he you're talking about He reminded me of the walrus from Alice, the walrus and the carpenter. I just, the way you played him, it just felt like, the you know, he was playing the walrus. And then you had the dumb guy, the dumb muscle, the town muscles. You couldn't fight a lick, but your dumb guy could fight. So. Yeah, he'd it butter was, him up and he'd, you know, he'd try to manipulate or intimidate people. That's the few skills he had. You know, basically like a politician in a medieval town would have. Uh, it was really, really fun to play that. We uh, we've gamed together for a long time, you know, several years. All of us have, and and there's been, and I would I would venture to say that we've got some people in our gaming group that are really good role players. They really can, uh, maybe not every time, but from time to time, they can get a character and really get into the role and really play it well. But I have to say that um, 
you, you saw the Burgermeister. I mean, and you weren't, it's not like you were the first one there and got first pick, if I remember correctly. You were one of the later ones there and everybody else had passed on the Burgermeister and you're just like, oh yeah, this is this is the one. But you jumped into that character so quick and it completely took over the entire game. You were yeah. so, you were made... I mean, honestly, uh, it, if I remember correctly, we were also trying out a new system that Calvin was working on that wasn't really fleshed out all that well. There's some flaws with it, but it really made the whole night very enjoyable just because you were the Burgermeister. Yeah, yeah that was my most most fun, easily. All right, well, this is an interview with the Calvin part two. I'm glad, we're, glad we got that in. I wanted to talk about that. And uh, you know, uh, we were probably over an hour, which is our target. And uh, I want to thank thank Eric for joining us. Yeah, a lot uh, of fun, Eric. Hope, hopefully yeah, he'll pleasure. be back. Had a good time. Uh, it's a good conversation. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next time. Translating. <laughs> You're gonna have to use your imagination. That's what Colin's actually saying. Then we can translate it later to a robot voice or something. <laughs> All right, let me let me hop on and if we if we actually get the ability to do that, I want the robot voice. <laughs> I just okay. I'm just saying.